Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hi, I'd like to welcome our listeners to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. My name is Todd Kinney, and I'm the National Relationship Director for BDO's Private Equity Practice. I'm very excited to have two guests with me today. Uh, First, uh, Jeff Becker joins us from JEGI. Jeff is a Managing Director and the co-head of the Tech Banking Practice. Jeff has more than 20 years experience as a tech banker focused on providing strategic advisories to his clients. Jeff and I actually spent some time together working uh, with the investment banking firm of Cowan & Company years ago. So, Jeff, good to see you again. Yep, same. And my second guest is Aaron Grossman. He is a principal with Gemspring Capital, uh, and he leads the firm's software investing practice, a very important and expanding PE client for BDO. So, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it, Jeff. Maybe if if you can kick things off and tell us a little bit about uh, JEGI and your role there. Sure. Uh, just briefly, JEGI is an investment banking boutique. We focus on middle market and growth firms. Um, we have been in business since 1987, so 31 years now. Uh, do uh, about 20 transactions or so a year, predominantly working with uh, PE and growth equity backed. Uh, companies and entrepreneurs um, on um, providing paths to liquidity, uh, sell side, uh, sometimes large uh, growth capital raises, um, also work with uh, larger entities on divestitures and occasionally buy side work as well. Uh, we have um, a lot of longevity with our managing directors. All of them have pretty much been in the business for 20 plus years. Uh, most of them have been at, at JEGI for 10, 15 years or more. I'm the newbie. One of the newbies only uh, been here four years now. Um, and um, we basically specialize in a lot of uh, domain expertise, vertical expertise, and intense uh, best practices on um, on printing a very efficient process for our clients. On, on my end, as you said, I've been a tech banker. Actually, I'm getting closer to 25 years now, hard to mm-hmm. believe. Um, so focused on enterprise software services, tech-enabled services that whole time. Uh, past lives with you. Used to work on a bunch of uh, public capital markets work as well. Uh, for the last 10 years, so been exclusively focused on providing uh, advisory services for our clients. Fantastic. So Aaron, as the as the leader of Gem, Gemsprings uh, tech investing practice, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your firm and your role at Gemspring. Sure. So, so Gemspring is a lower mid-market private equity firm. We're based in Westport, Connecticut. We invest across a variety of sectors, tech broadly defined being a key focus area for us and and where I spend my time. Uh, We're control-oriented investors, but I'd say we have a fairly flexible mandate in terms of transaction structure, and we really try to customize each deal and structure for the needs of of all stakeholders involved. Um, You know, we'll do uh, majority recaps, we'll do corporate carve-outs, full buyouts, um, we'll even look at, you know, structured minority equity investments. Uh, regardless of the sector, you know, we're looking for solid platforms that have the potential for transformational growth, whether that be organic, inorganic, you know, combination of the two. Uh, one thing that I think does differentiate us relative to a lot of other private equity firms is we have a fairly large team 
um, for the size fund, we're a $350 million fund. Um, we take a bit more of a resource of intensive approach to really everything we do. That's from sourcing to diligence, but most important, uh, post-investment value creation. A lot of us have operating backgrounds. I myself have spent half my career on the operating side, half on the investing side, predominantly in tech and, and growth-oriented software businesses. Um, but we're not turnaround investors. And so I think that's a bit unique that we're looking to invest in solid businesses, have a growth-oriented thesis, um, but get actively involved in having that operational lens uh, in addition to the investing lens can be really helpful to our portfolio companies. Great. Well, let's uh, let's dive into our, our first topic, and I guess Aaron, we'll 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 stay with you. Um, so, I, I guess if you can share with our listeners what what beyond the recurring revenue model makes the software sector attractive, and I guess at the same time, what's risky about it? Yeah. So, so software companies really represent the holy grail in terms of financial characteristics that private equity investors um, are looking for. Right. It's high gross margins low capex and working capital requirements, oftentimes negative working capital businesses, sticky customer relationships, oftentimes a lot of runway for growth. Um, so those are all things that you know, have investors uh, salivating. Um, I think another thing that's important to note you know, is that we're, um, we're in one of the longest, if not the longest, you know, bull markets in history. Um, most people think that there'll be some correction in the market in the next several years. It's not to say that software is completely immune to any downturn in the economy, but relative to most other sectors, um, just a function of the you know embeddedness with customers and the you know recurring revenue model, um, are are more immune to uh, to any recession or cycle in the economy than a lot of other sectors. So it can be uh, on a relative basis somewhat of a safe haven um, relative to other ind- industries. You know, in terms of risk factors, I think the first. Um, What's first and foremost on people's minds is just valuation. Um, you know, you've got businesses that are trading not only at very, very healthy EBITDA multiples, but really revenue multiples. And so, um, you know, that all makes sense because a lot of software companies are reinvesting um, all of their gross profit into, you know, R&D and sales and marketing and able to expand their market opportunity and grow as fast as possible. But in order to, you know, pay uh, a healthy revenue multiple for a business, especially from a bio perspective, you really need to um, get conviction around the growth and the operating leverage in the business in order to uh, underwrite the returns that, you know, that we as private equity investors are looking for. I think another thing that, um, that could be a potential risk factor and applies to some subsectors of software more than others is just the pace of technological change. Um, so if you take a space like security, for example, you, know, you really want to make sure that what you're investing in today is going to be relevant three, four, or five years ago, or three or four or five years from now, and that um, there isn't going to be some disruptive technology that completely takes the place of what you're investing in, and at least the business that you're investing in can be adaptive to changes that are happening in the market. Great insight, uh, Jeff. Let's bring you in. Um, I, you obviously have extensive experience in software and tech-enabled services. Uh, let me let me throw out a two-part question. Um, what are some of the most promising and exciting innovations you're seeing right now? And I'm also curious if you're seeing more tech-enabled services. Sure. Um, let me let me make it a three-part question, if I can, just to follow up on Aaron's point. I think it's it's so interesting that uh, software is now considered like the holy grail uh, for PE firms because 15 years ago, 
a software bankers like myself couldn't even spell PE because the, you, know, you had perpetual license models. Technology was still this black box for most invest, professional investors and things like that. And there was no such thing um, with the volatility in software companies of, of a buyout. And nowadays in our business, it's the majority of our business is dealing with firms like Aaron's um, who are looking to you know not only own but grow uh, software companies because of the recurring revenue models and all the other things that you mentioned. So I just find that that fascinating for someone with uh, again, it's a little bit of perspective in the business. You know, probably the one area that's the most um, ubiquitous and most applicable to, to many different areas around software is in all the interest in artificial intelligence, right? So you can't go anywhere anymore without hearing AI thrown around as the latest uh, buzzword. And it really does apply to almost every uh, sector, whether you're trying to you know, further automate business processes, which is the core of historically of enterprise software, and now also trying to get more actionable intelligence um, and, and insights, um, and and then closing a loop and creating predictive um, opportunities for uh, for companies. I mean, that's where AI is just applicable everywhere. So that kind of big data buzzword has morphed into AI and machine learning, but it really is applicable whether it's um, you know trying to predict um, things in supply chain and in, in in healthcare and in in, in security and in everything. Right. So that's that's clearly the biggest. Beyond that, there's always um, uh, interest and has continued to grow and I think will continue to grow around various industry verticals in software, just because a lot of the horizontal opportunities are, uh, you know, have, are, are pretty mature at this point. So in, in vertical, in specific industry verticals, there's a, uh, tends to be stickier, tends to be a lot more leverage to the business model in terms of sales and marketing, um, perhaps a more finite group of competitors, and you can compete more effectively against, um, against more horizontal players. So we do see a tremendous amount of interest, especially from, from PE, um, in, in even uh, smaller and smaller niches of, uh, of industry verticals. Um, one of them, which is still more of a broader area that I spend, is in human capital management, it's everything around HR and talent. And since there's um, some uh, great trends going on in terms of a war for talent right now, that's one niche as an example, even though it's not necessarily an industry. Um, and to your last point around, around tech-enabled services, that actually that, that last point I make, um, the human capital management space is probably one where it's, it's very applicable because you have a lot of technology companies that have been out there doing stuff for a while, but you have other players, whether it's consulting, outsourcing, payroll companies who are trying, you know, all services companies are worried about software eating the world. And so they're kind of converging and, and meeting in the middle there. So you're finding a lot of companies that are using technology, but also still providing a complete solution um, in terms of services. And that's that's one area in particular where tech-enabled services are are very broad, but it's really everywhere. So as opposed to before where bankers like me, perhaps um, whether it's venture capital or private equity investors would maybe shy away from some companies because they had a, a people element um, or services element to the business model. Um, a lot of them are being embraced. As long as you can show that it still has that great kind of recurring revenue, low churn, higher margin um, attributes, it's a solution and it's SaaS-like and, and tech-enabled services are, are very popular. Aaron, care to, care to comment? Yeah, I think just on that last, um, that last point, it's important as investors to not be dogmatic about, um, you know, drawing a very finite box around, we only want to invest in companies that look like this, um, because it really gets to the financial profile and the revenue model of the business. And so I think having some flexibility around, um, you know, 
they may have people that are performing some functions. So yes, technically it's more a tech-enabled service than it is truly a software business, but it has all the trappings and the gross margins and recurring profile um, and thus can be valued very similarly to a software business. And I think it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us to have some flexibility in how we're evaluating these businesses um, and uh, you know whether it's a tech-enabled service or it's a software business, what you call it is not as important. It's really around the you know, financial profile, the revenue, uh, the revenue profile, and the, the growth opportunities of the business. Awesome, awesome. Lots of uh, great color and, and insight from, from both of you on that topic. So let's kind of transition broadly to uh, subsectors. Uh, there's certainly many industries with tech subsectors. I, I guess take, for instance, ag tech, market tech, ad tech, health tech, fintech, and so on. I guess, uh, let's, Aaron, let's go to you first and then Jeff. Are there particular subsectors uh, that stand out to you as, uh, as attractive? Yeah, there, there are. And what, what's, you know, where we've been spending a good amount of time is looking at, you know, what may be perceived as uh, old stodgy industries, whether it's uh, logistics, distribution, insurance, construction, that are large mar- markets have not really been early adopters necessarily of technology. Um, uh, you know, and operators in these businesses um, are using either, you know, legacy on-premise systems, if that, you know, cobbled together homegrown systems, oftentimes are using manual processes and Excel to run their businesses. Um, but you're seeing whether it's because of generational change or um, just finally software is starting to, you know, the dominoes are falling in these markets as well, is huge opportunity for, you know, vertical specific software businesses um, that can really make these businesses a lot more a lot more efficient, and so these tend to be you know sticky, nice, high retention businesses, but at the same time haven't been as picked over as some other markets, um, especially maybe some horizontal markets, as Jeff mentioned earlier. Um, so present a really interesting opportunity for us. I think um, you know aside from those large vertical markets, uh, there are also a lot of interesting niche vertical markets. Uh, you know one of the benefits of being a private equity investor as opposed to a venture investor is that we don't need multi-multi-billion dollar TAMs or addressable markets in order for us to, for it to be a successful investment for us. You know, all things being equal, a bigger market is better than a smaller market. Um, But as Jeff mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes the competitive dynamics, um, just the, uh, you know, the unit economics of a business can be a lot more attractive for investors like us in some of these, uh, these nichier vertical markets. Great. Jeff, what do you see? Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree. And as I mentioned before, starting to see a lot more interest in, in vertical solutions for all the reasons mentioned. Um, I think, you know, some of the areas are because places that have been either, you know, backwater for, um, you know, technology where the technology hasn't really gotten there uh, and it's been a laggard. Um, and uh, in, in other places, I think, where um, the populations, the user populations of these applications are um, folks who are not necessarily in front of a computer, you know, blue-collar workers out in the field, more mobile. And, of course, now with everybody having doing everything on their phone, you're having much more consumer-like app, apps um, that can do enterprise functionality. Um, so in industries like uh, construction, like logistics, um, out, you know, um, field service and healthcare, uh, mobile healthcare uh, workers, whatnot – you're seeing a lots of new different kinds of uh, applications come out that are perhaps mobile first, 
um, for those specific markets, as an example. Uh, again, in one of the areas that I tend to focus a lot of my time on around the, the human capital management space, even there, um, solutions have got more vertical for, you know, for hospitality, for, for retail, uh, you know, for, again, some of these field service folks, um, because otherwise you just can't reach them. They're not, they're not doing things on a laptop because they don't have a laptop. They don't have a desktop. Right. And finally, now you can, you, can, uh, you can bring technology to them. A few clicks, a few texts even are, are completing you know, workflow. So it's kind of interesting time right now. So let's jump to the next topic. So what are some of the tech hubs you think are ripe for incubators for innovation? We've certainly heard so much for a long time about places like Silicon Valley, New York, Seattle. Uh, I guess, Jeff, I'll throw it to you and then Aaron this time. Uh, What geographic regions do you think are emerging markets where exciting activity is really starting to bubble up? Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, the Valley. We still go out there all the time. That's not going to change for a while, but you know, a lot about right here in New York. Certainly, Seattle. Everything around Amazon and uh, and Microsoft and uh, just a great quality of life. But it's really everywhere. I mean, it's, you get a place like Austin and, and other places that have popped up. Um, and I suppose the next Amazon headquarters will be the you know one of the next uh, hubs as well. But it's really everywhere. I mean, I find myself having um, I'm actually put in the process of putting it right now. Kind of my planning my trips the rest of the year, and it's like. Chicago, it's 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 Cleveland, it's Denver, it's all kinds of places. It's you know between companies being able to to use uh, AWS to kind of get started, outsource development, um, you know, talent being able to be more mobile in general. There's really not as much need to just be located just in Silicon Valley, where the cost of living is prohibitive anyway. Um, so really finding very interesting companies. Um, in all different locations. I, I really believe that's a trend that will continue. I think Silicon Valley will, uh, and some of those other hubs will always be important. There's just a good access to capital and people and whatnot. But I do think more and more it'll become dispersed around the country. And, and you know, likewise, you know, internationally. I mean, we're all over Europe now. We have a partnership in the firm that's based in Europe and also Australia and lots of interesting opportunities all over the place. Sure. Aaron, what are you seeing? Yeah, look, I, I'd agree with everything that Jeff said. Um, you know, being control-oriented investors, we're uh, we're investing in profitable businesses. So oftentimes, these are bootstrapped, um, founder-owned companies, family-owned businesses that haven't raised much, if any, outside capital. Um, so these companies actually tend not to be in uh, those tech hubs. Uh, partly, and these go hand in hand because the cost of talent uh, can be so high. But also venture investors, um, they're getting away from the somewhat, but tend to fund businesses that are in their backyards. Um, and that that's just a, a whole different ballgame. And so the, the companies that we're looking to invest in tend to be outside of those places and are really dispersed uh, in cities uh, across the country. Um, you know, another factor, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is, you know, given our focus on on vertical market software, which makes up the majority of the software businesses that we're looking to invest in, you often find clusters of companies uh, that are tied to a specific sector in a geography um, where that activity is centered. So, uh, you know, energy and utility software companies that are in Dallas and Houston, because that's where the ecosystem is. And there are examples like that um, throughout the country. So it's not to say that we wouldn't invest in a business in you know Boston, New York, or the Bay Area. I still spend a lot of time there, just given the the tech ecosystems and the the executives, the uh, the advisors, and and everything around that that are there. But uh, more often than not, the businesses that we're spending time in are actually in other places in the country besides what you think of as the tech hubs, whether now or 
the places of innovation for the for the future. Well, you guys are going to have uh, lots of people following you around the country now to these uh, these new spots you've highlighted. It's more frequent flyer miles. Yeah, let's <laughs> uh, let's segue uh, to uh, fundraising for tech, which uh, you know clearly shows no sign of uh, slowing down, even as uh, investors express concern over PE firms' ability to digest um, really massive amounts of capital that they are absorbing. So. Uh, Jeff, why don't we go to you first, and then Aaron, kind of broadly on the, on the fundraising topic. What's your outlook? Um, you know, I don't really worry about you know PE and, and VC firms uh, digesting and spending the capital. I, I think <laughs> you know that's their that's their business. I think in good mar- economies and good markets like this, they're going to continue to do so. Um, you know, they are. Um, there's lots of capital out there for companies that want to create the next, you know, unicorn. Um, certainly that's a trend. There's lots of folks going, you know, for the big win. Um, lots of big, um, in, in PE, in more of the PE landscape, you know, looking for inorganic opportunities. There, there's so many of them, you know, looking where most of our, a lot of our activity is uh, providing, um, hopefully, uh, interesting things to look at for firms like Aaron's in terms of add-ons for their portfolio companies. So there's no shortage of ways for them to digest their capital. Um, in if the markets were to change and become, uh, you know, a down market, you know, firms are smart. Hopefully, they save some of their capital to uh, to invest there. Because you can make, you know, last time around, you look at, you know, kind of post. Great recession, post-internet bubble bursting. Some of those investments made in the first couple of years after that turned out to be winners. You know, on the other hand, um, I, I think there's another route that we're seeing more and more uh, folks go, which is, hey, I'm, you know, think of entrepreneurs or manager teams looking to not necessarily raise boatloads of capital because it just means that the exit has to be that much higher, uh, that much of a narrower path to success to get a good return on all of that capital. And we're, we're seeing a trend more and more. Companies saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be smarter. I'm going to bootstrap a little bit more. I'm going to only raise the capital that I absolutely need. I don't need a $500 million exit. I need a $100 million exit. And I can personally make a bunch of money. My investors will make a bunch of money, whatnot. So uh, even in a down market, I think you'll start to see, uh, at least from the entrepreneur side, people being a little bit more cautious about the capital they raise. Yeah. Aaron, how about your outlook? So on, on the fund side, you know, for, for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier of why software uh, is so attractive to investors like us, our limited partners, so the, the groups that are investing in our fund, uh, see the same things. And so whether it's uh, putting capital into tech-only funds or funds like Gemspring, uh, where tech is an important focus, um, it's because of the financial characteristics and, and the growth opportunities for, for software businesses. So, you know, certainly the inflow of capital has made the environment more competitive. Um, you know, that being said, it's still very much a fragmented and target-rich environment. Uh, so it requires a certain element of hustle and, you know, turning over a lot of stones to find those opportunities where despite the competition, because there's very little, if any, proprietary deals out there, despite what mo- most people will say, uh, for quality businesses. Uh, so despite the competition and the what some might think of as inflated valuations, you can still underwrite you know, compelling returns, which is what we're in business to do. You know, the days are behind us when you can just run the LBO math and go along for the ride and, and make a good return. It sounds, it sounds cliche, but it's, it's true. You really do need to have expertise in the sectors that you're investing in. You have to uh, 
filter the, the out the opportunities where you you know have a point of view in an angle um, where you really can create value in these businesses because otherwise it's it, it is challenging given given valuations and the competitive environment. Gotcha. Appreciate the uh, the insight, guys. Uh, and, and now we'd like to take a, a quick coffee break with BDO's Aftab Jamil. Aftab is the global leader of BDO's technology practice. Aftab will distill CFO's predictions about M&A activity in 2018, as well as factors that buyers should really keep in mind when evaluating a deal. Hello, my name is Aftab Jamil, and I'm the global leader of BDO's technology industry practice. Today, I wanted to just take a few moments to discuss the deal activity that our team is seeing in tech space and offer just a few best practices for investors pursuing uh, technology deals. To start, earlier this year, the BDO's technology practice released its annual technology outlook survey, which surveys 100 CFOs at wide at a wide range of technology companies. We asked them to make predictions about the M&A activity in 2018, and it turns out that many were bullish about deal-making. Nearly three-fourths of the tech CFOs expected the deal volume to increase through 2018, and nearly 60% expected valuations to increase. Uh, meanwhile, nearly half expected to engage in M&A activity this year, a steep increase from 31% that we saw in 2017. So did the CFO's prediction come true? Well, mid-year Thomson Reuters data would indicate that yes, tech M&A and M&A in general has been particularly robust this year. The value of global tech deals halfway through 2018 has already surpassed that of 2017. So what should investors interested in acquiring technology companies know before they enter a merger or an acquisition? Well, we recommend that that they take a few key steps, the most important of which is ensuring a pre-deal alignment with respect to post-acquisition goals and objectives, especially if there are any contingent earnouts or holdbacks or purchase consideration. Besides ensuring a smoother transaction process throughout, the truth is it's already too late for both the buyer and the seller to negotiate after an acquisition is complete. Both parties need to agree upon various factors before the deal uh, closes to avoid post-merger litigation and value erosion. Now with that, Um, In mind, there are really three factors that buyers should keep in mind when evaluating a deal. Mainly, business strategy alignment, financial due diligence, and tech strategy planning. When it comes to the business strategy alignment, buyers first need to understand the comparative landscape. Who, Who else is looking at the same assets? And how are those players measuring valuations? Investors also need to have an active dialogue on expected metrics and KPIs with their target acquisitions. All too often, we see lack of consistent understanding between 
are PE firms and acquisition targets regarding a clear structure for KPIs and what buyers expect of their targets once the transaction is completed. As a best practice, we recommend that when setting up KPIs, every effort is made to use the data already available in the company. For the financial compliance component, this almost goes without saying, but it is critical that buyers have a deep understanding of the target's current and historical financial performance and profitability, as well as, of course, um, its business operations. At the same time, it is important to assess a company's current and potential financial liabilities. What, what is the condition of the target's assets? What indebtedness is outstanding or guaranteed by the company? And what are the terms? These are just a few questions to consider as clean books and records that follow gap accounting policies are crucial to ensuring a smooth deal. Now, lastly, buyers need to examine the target's total tax liability and any potential exposures due to prior tax positions that the sellers may have taken. Tax is often ignored, especially amongst the smaller tech companies until the business arrives at an inflection point like an M&A event. Buyers should review the target's current and historical federal, state, local, and, and foreign income, uh, incomes and sales and other tax returns filings to see whether there are any outstanding liabilities that need to be addressed or improvements that can be made. They also need to be aware of all tax costs and implications associated with the transaction itself, which can only be mitigated through sound tax planning. Investors that prioritize business strategy, alignment, financial due diligence, and tax strategy when evaluating tech deals have a good chance of ensuring a smooth deal process in an increasingly competitive deal environment. Thanks, Aftab. And now back to our conversation with Aaron and Jeff. Guys, let's, let's, let's talk about, I guess, broadly the market landscape. Um, Jeff, uh, would you describe the, uh, the landscape as, as a buyer's or seller's market and what are the opportunities and challenges you, you face when navigating this current market as you really try to differentiate your firm? So um, I think it's, it's definitely more of a, um, a seller's market. Uh, that being said, I kind of argue that it's a good market for both in many ways. Uh, seller's market, as Aaron said, I mean, valuations are high. Um, there's plenty of capital out there. Um, so there's, you know, good opportunity for, for exit. Uh, the economy's strong. Companies are generally doing reasonably well. Um, it, it does make it more challenging for buyers, um, you know, to, uh, to be very disciplined in terms of from a valuation perspective. Um, but on their end, you know, there's still plenty of debt available, plenty of capital available. Um, and companies are, you know, businesses are, are strong. Uh, it's a good fundraising environment for our funds. So I think, you know, the, the buyers are, f- are feeling good. The sellers are feeling a little bit better. And that's, you know, creates a, a good dynamic for lots of deals. So folks like me or intermediaries, <laughs> hey, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great market. Um, you know, as far as how do you, um, you differentiate then, 
Um, I think it comes back to kind of like, like Aaron said, I mean, they're looking at it from like making a return and adding value over the course of a three to five year hold period. We're looking at adding value over the course of a six to 24 month, you know, get to know you and then working with you um, experience in a process to getting to liquidity. So it's really much more about, you know, domain expertise and being able to add value in terms of making the right introductions and, and making, um, uh, you know, some good, uh, giving some good advice on how to tweak business models, tweak positioning um, and think about a process to get that that right value and maximize the opportunity you have in such a good market. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats, but, you know, our job is to get the, you know, even even higher above the high tide level there. So good, good market for all right now. Uh, but that makes it that much more competitive. And for all of us, both the investors and the uh, and the advisors, got to work that much harder to yep. differentiate ourselves. Yeah, makes sense. I've known you for decades. I know you're a trusted advisor. So <laughs> appreciate the insight. Aaron, there's a lot of change around how PE is approaching business and really playing more where historically buyouts and VC played. Do you care to comment on the trend? Yeah, I think it's it, it's a good point, and it's, it's really interesting. Um, we're seeing private equity firms do LBOs. Um, it's not just investing in, but actually raising debt to buy companies that um, have very little, if any, EBITDA. And it's funny, in, in, in a lot of respects, EBITDA is almost a taboo word now in the software private equity world, and everything's about, about revenue and, and multiple of ARR, um, which just wasn't the case five and definitely 10 years ago. Um, and so you see private equity stepping up and um, doing control and buyout deals of companies like this. Um, you see lenders uh, really getting comfortable and lending not only off a multiple of cash flow or EBITDA, but a multiple of recurring revenue or ARR. And so companies that would have been candidates to only go public, raise later stage venture capital funding, or get sold to a strategic, there's now a whole new world of potential buyers for these businesses uh, within the private equity landscape. Jeff, care to share your thoughts? I mean, I, I echo that a thousand percent. Um, so the big change over, you know, kind of five, 10, 15 years as a 25 year software banker, tech banker has been the emergence of private equity as a, as a real player in the space to the point where, you know, in all of our processes, almost every single one of them, we have kind of half of the buyer universe is, is private equity, if not more so. Um, and that's now, you know, changed again even more over the last two to five years in terms of kind of growth equity buyout or growth equity recaps, where just like Aaron said, I mean, you have companies that are still growing. More, you know, PE might have been looking at more boring businesses that were very mature, that weren't candidates for the things. Now, still, companies that are growing that are not yet fully mature, that are not yet optimizing at all on cash flow are opportunities for uh, majority recapitalizations um, by, you know, PE firms who are now kind of looking for more growth. Likewise, you have more traditional growth equity kind of later stage VC firms who are looking at the later end of the spectrum and trying to put more money to work. And there's a, a big pool of capital kind of right in the middle. You know, we just closed a deal for a great company called ThinkHR where, it was the same thing. It was a majority uh, transaction, but they also put money on the balance sheet. It was a very large check. It's the kind of deal that you would not have seen probably five years ago at all. And we had a lot of uh, demand for that and talking to other companies about similar transactions. So I think it's a, a big, big change uh, in the market. Great. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump to our last topic. And I guess, Aaron, I'll go to you and then Jeff. 
uh, of the uh, really of the criteria to choose from, what do you generally look at when evaluating business plans and company culture? And and additionally, how do you balance this with evaluating the actual product or service that the company produces? Look, I think I think they go hand in hand, and it's hard to prioritize one versus the other, um, especially with a tech or a software business uh, where you're selling a, a product that you've developed. You can't. You can't have one without the other. Um, and uh, so you need, you know, one of the first things we look for when we're looking at a software business is, is the product good? Are the customers happy? And there's, you know, various ways to measure that through uh, retention, through NPS or CSAT scores and, and, uh, uh, and other factors. Um, but the products, you know, n- despite what people may say, rarely, if ever, do the products sell themselves. And so that's everything from the teams that are uh, continuing to develop and expand on the product from a go-to-market and sales and marketing standpoint. Uh, so we're evaluating it all. Um, and, uh, you know, on the people side, uh, culture is important. It's hard for us as the investors, and I don't think we'd want to be in a position where part of our thesis is changing the culture. That's something that's either there or it isn't. Um, on the people side, you know, we're obviously looking to back great management teams. Um, sometimes there are gaps um, that need to be filled uh, where we can leverage our network to um, help fill in those gaps over the course of our investment. In some cases, those gaps aren't there. Um, but but it, it really is the, uh, you know, you, you, need, you need both. You can't have one without the other. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, from a banker's perspective, um, I mean, similarly, uh, you're certainly looking for a good business model and a, and a good business at its heart, right? Because that, that, that is a big part of what we're doing. We're not necessarily being, you know, seed or series A type of investors are dealing with companies at that stage. Um, and so, you know, at that stage, you're looking for sometimes just a CEO or founder with a great vision and, or, or track record. And that could be enough. Um, I think where we are and where a lot of PE universe and audience is, is it is a mix so you certainly need you should have some semblance of the business models actually you know working and the products or services in demand, but it's really the team at that point because we're not going to take on a project if uh, if the team isn't going to show well uh, and isn't we don't think has confidence we don't have confidence in them to execute and be also a you know good ethical management team but it's the team so it's it's probably shifts a little bit away from being purely the kind of the CEO founder and the, the cult of personality there. It's great to have that, but you don't necessarily need that. Having a broader team at that point uh, when you're going out to PE Universe is really more important. And there are certainly there are holes that you can fill, but you want to, that team has to, you know, kind of gel together. Um, hopefully some of the strengths and the weaknesses that maybe the, the founder CEO doesn't have are, are brought out in, in the strength that the COO has, the head of sales, you know, whatever. And likewise, uh, you know, I think one of the, areas that are mostly neglected is around the finance function and whether it's a really good CFO or at least a very, very talented kind of VP finance controller, you, you do need that, especially as you're getting ready to talk to, you know, kind of the PE uh, universe. It's just, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll create a lot, it'll lessen the brain damage factor of getting a deal done tremendously, make it much easier for both the banker and the, uh, and the potential buyer investor. Makes the process easier for all involved. Of course, and having a great accounting firm to work with. Exactly. We've come to another end of a, uh, a really a great podcast. I want to thank Aaron Grossman with Gemspring Capital and Jeff Becker with JEGI. You're both 
good friends and, and great relationships to, uh, to BDO. So we appreciate your time being here today. I know you're both very busy chasing and getting deals done. Um, and I'm, I, I'm confident our listeners are going to enjoy hearing about your experiences and your insight. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for joining us. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.